my favorite three tweets, I'm going to pull them all together, I guess, uh, sure. was this idea that we talked about a little bit last week with uh, Bill Eckhart in his interview. Um, it goes, mechanical trading with a safety net of rare human overrides is the best approach. Um, it's better to trade closer to the size that you like than if risk rises above a threshold, manually override, which sounds like a contradiction for the three of us, because if we go with that, we, we definitely think we should follow our system. Um, but I can definitely see that I probably agree with that. No, no shock there that um, one should not worry too much that uh, there was another quote, uh, something like, if, if you really truly believe in your system, you should not deleverage during a drawdown. And I thought, well, I think uh, I'm going to have to go with Bill Eckhart on this and sort of uh, with the idea that we're following these systems, but this is not a religion. This is uh, serious. It's we, we, we have a goal of capital preservation and preserving capital during bad periods. And we just have to, even though we've, we believe in what we do, we have to leave open the possibility that it may not work very well. And we may see markets in bad periods like, like we've never seen before and give ourselves an out in order to preserve our capital and live to play another day. Uh, well, well-worn cliche, but it's sort of true that um, I don't think that it's a bad thing to trade smaller. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. And I've said it before, trading smaller and reducing risk um, allows one to continue to be disciplined. We're going to do the same trades uh, just in a smaller way until uh, I feel better about this, uh, my, you know, my current situation and the drawdown kind of stops. And then there was the third part to this, which is uh, a study that I had seen before and tweeted before, but I, for some reason, did it again. And uh, it was a supposedly a study where one of the conclusions were, was that people were more likely to use an algorithm and accept its errors if given the opportunity to modify the algorithm themselves, even if it meant make, making it perform imperfectly. So I think that, yes, we're going to make less money if we have these overrides, probably. We're probably going to be better off following the system and not having to or not uh, reducing the risk at some point in time. But it may save us as well. So I think that it's sort of like the car. I've also heard, read uh, studies on the self-driving cars where people like them more if they have a brake or if they can override. You know, and So I think we, we just need to make peace with technology and algos and try to find a way to stay disciplined and allow the algorithms and the rules to do what they're supposed to do, but also allow us to continue to do that by giving us a little bit of power over them when it looks like that they're imperfect and they're going to fail just like we would. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, it's a very fundamental point you bring up, uh, you know, a discussion I think that has been, you know, really framed that if you use, uh, you know, just 1% of, of override uh, in your uh, in your methodology, you, you are no longer systematic. I mean, that's how I think some of these discussions have been framed in, in the past. But uh, I, I see your point uh, in, 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 in many ways. I wonder whether still um, some of these things should be 
um, systematized, you know, if possible. Um, so that again, you don't, if I think for me, there's a big distinction between are we doing it based on human emotions or are we doing it based on rules? And I don't think that there's anything wrong with trading smaller in a drawdown if it's based on a rule, but if it's based on a human emotion, because it doesn't feel nice and, and maybe this, you know, can lead to bigger losses, but maybe not, then I think we are, you know, digressing a little bit from our 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 uh, aim of being uh, systematic. Um, and I, I'm not a statistician by no, no means, but my understanding is, of course, that the longer your track record, the longer you trade, the bigger the the possibility is for for a bigger drawdown, right? So we often hear that the, our biggest drawdown is probably ahead of us, which is probably true. If we trade for another 50 years, we might have a bigger drawdown than we've had in the last 45 years or 30 years, whatever. So, you know, so, so do we accept that, so to speak? I mean, do we accept that we should always, tr- or do, we, we, do we try to always um, have smaller drawdowns in the future or do we accept what the stats, stats says? And that is that if you go on with a much longer time frame, there's a, there's a likelihood, a high likelihood that you're going to have a bigger drawdown than, than, than not. I think these are very important discussions. I'm not uh, saying what's right or, or wrong, but I'm just saying that I, to me, if, if we start uh, deviating away from using rules for everything, then we are flirting with, with a new territory. Um, but by the way, uh, because I used to work with a firm like that where there was rules, but with a discretionary overlay, and I, I think it is a discretionary overlay, even if it could also be based on some rules, but if you don't apply them consistently, then it's kind of discretion. And uh, so I've seen it work. I just don't think it works necessarily for everyone um, to to start applying these things. Um, and um, it certainly makes it more uh, difficult for investors to analyze um, compared to a fully systematized um, uh, strategy. But maybe it's a hybrid, which... You know, there's always new ways of doing things and, and we should not be stuck in, as you say, it's not a religion. So we should op- be open to doing it differently for sure. Um, but I think for me, it's more of a third category than than discretionary and systematic. This is kind of a hybrid of that. What do you think, Moritz? I agree with that. I mean, um, look, we are making changes to our systems. Uh, you've mentioned that in one of the past episodes that Dunn has made a couple of major changes in 2007, 2008, or somewhere around that, that point in time. Yeah, 2006 and 2013, absolutely. Six yeah. and 13, right? So yeah. um, looking back at, at my systems, I do make changes to those. But the thing is, it, it stays trend following. Um, the changes don't make the system you know, become a mean reverting system or like fundamentally change the way it works. So... I still think it is systematic, right? If somebody looked at that and had a problem with analyzing it, saying, well, that's now a discretionary system because you're making changes, well, what can it really No, I think you're missing my point here, Moritz. Just for me to be clear, I don't talk about, I'm not referring to research changes where clearly you do a research project, you make a change. I'm talking about during your trading, Okay, then you suddenly decide to reduce. I'll get to that, right? So. So you have that thing and, and, you know, you implement it, you follow it. And then what I don't really want to do, and I sit with with Jerry there on rather trades smaller than larger, is come into a situation, come to a point where there's so much stress 
in that system or emotionally or both that you're at that breaking point and then you feel you want to make a change to that system because I, you know, without being able to prove it, but I would say that the odds are that you're making a change to a system at exactly the worst point in time. You're making a change at a time during which you are in duress, the system is in a drawdown, you can't take the pain anymore, you don't want to take, maybe you can't take, but you don't want to take the pain anymore. You just feel like you need to change something. And the changes that you make then because you trade your equity curve, I just be very careful. I think they're dangerous. Um, and so the I think that the core recipe should be to trade small enough so that you can live through that drawdown. Um, and yes, you know, the larger drawdown may be the one ahead of us, but live through that drawdown, be able to, you know, to go through it and come back out of it. I know it takes a lot of time sometimes, and that can be extremely hard um, on investors, on yourself, but it is important. I don't, I haven't found it at least, I haven't found the way to eliminate that, that risk. I think it's it's part of the method. It's part of the PL that we make. Um, and and so those overrides, I, I'm not sure. I, I definitely don't want to make any overrides in a situation of stress and pain. Um, and you know, I think that that is what I wanted to say, Niels, is that the overrides as part of the normal research process, well, fine, right? Yeah, I agree. They may be in a in a period of a slight drawdown, they may be when you make a new all-time high even, right? But I mean, this is this is just what we do. Um, sure. Yeah, and I th- uh, this is a little bit different idea, I think, but <clears throat> uh, this week when I saw that some October numbers, um, I just thought about the conversation we've had, I think, last week, which was, uh, you know, the stock market is an 8% return, basically, the, the S&P, and then a 50% plus drawdown. And I got to thinking, like, why am I not trying to make 8%? And I don't think there's a lot of CTAs or hedge funds. Maybe I'm wrong, but are really saying, look, I'm going to try to make 8%. So when a bad month gets compared to a typical bad month for the stock market, it'll look somewhat yeah. similar. But it just seems like that some, some of us uh, can post some really large numbers, and uh, plus and minus, and it really just people are going, what are you guys doing? Uh Oh, don't don't worry. We're going to make a lot of money. Well, I know you've been saying that for a while, and so the volatility itself um, puts pressure on us, puts pressure on the clients. Um, you know, and it's self-imposed to some degree because look, if you're trying to make twelve or fifteen, live with it, and that's going to be life. It's going to be more volatile than the stock market that's going to make seven or eight. Yeah, I think. That, I mean, I think that's a great point, and I think that this is where. To some extent, I, I do see that there is a bit of a double standard, the way people look at equities and the way people look at alternatives and certainly, you know, trend followers. I mean, I think we are held up to a, la- a higher standard when it comes to you're not allowed to have, you know, drawdowns bigger than this, but we still want you to outperform and we want you to make money when the equities goes down and so on and so on and so forth. I mean, there are a lot of things we have to to deliver uh, as, as a strategy, uh, which is... Um, you know, may, and and this is certainly on, on on my part. This is why I really try and make the distinction to people about we're not a hedge; we're an uncorrelated return stream. But it does mean we sometimes will be correlated, and sometimes we will be negatively correlated. You know. 
just uh, just one point on those um, overrides and the drawdown. I, I mean, just just to put some background onto that, I'm just you know um, reminiscing about the own PNL there. I mean, there are drawdowns that take super super long, and it takes just uh, feels like an eternity to get out of them, right? And then you have those drawdowns, and and I remember there have been a couple that you know even even though the larger drawdowns. And those were recovered in three to four weeks, like super, super fast, right? Maybe even quicker. And mm. um, so, you know, had I made any changes to the system at the point of maximum drawdown, then I probably wouldn't have been able to get out of that that fast. And that felt really good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's another great point, actually, that, you know, point about recoveries, right? That, that we shouldn't underestimate that very often, even after a long drawdown, the recovery period can be super short. Yes. And so what does that do if we start fiddling around with, with, with the systems? Um, I would imagine that would change uh, the recovery periods as well, of course. Exactly. And that could change the whole drawdown profile. And, and my contention is that um, the S&P... 500 is a system. It, it has rules. It may be yeah, a little bit of sure. trend following rules. It keeps adding to winners and uh, de-emphasizing the stocks that are lagging behind. <clears throat> yeah. So it doesn't get out. <laughs> so <laughs> at the worst possible 50 plus percent drawdown that I keep mentioning to make sure it's just getting in everyone's head, it's an yeah. 8% return and a 50% drawdown plus. Well, the reason it's an 8% is because at the worst drawdown, it just is fully invested. Does it doesn't? Yeah. Um, and now we all talk about how well you know this is impossible to accept. This is impossible for people to continue keeping their money in in this uh, system. But uh, theoretically, you know, this is the papers and the articles are written as if they do, and it has a really good performance because it doesn't do anything. It just stays yeah. with it. And you can add to that, Jerry, that I think that when they are in that 50% drawdown, we know that the rebalancing or whatever it's called that comes through, I mean, the the worst performers will be kicked out and we're going to have some new constituents in, in the S&P. And, and, and frankly, we don't know if the ones that are being kicked out would be the ones that are having the greatest recovery, which is very likely afterwards. And, and, and so not only do we have an 8% return strategy with a 50% plus drawdown, it also has drawdowns that have lasted 10 year plus, which has never been the case for any, I think, trend following strategy that is still around. 